The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, take your Bibles. We're going to now continue as we listen to God's Word and, and hear God's Word. Uh, you may have had your bookmark in Matthew because we were in there for about a year, but today we're going to move the, the Bible tassel over just a little bit. Uh, well, we're going to go to Romans chapter 1 as we start this new five-week series uh, today, uh, looking at gospel reflections from uh, the Reformation. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, and, and then Romans. That's where we're going to be. And so Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Uh, today has become known in the church, church calendar as Reformation Sunday. Uh, the movement of, of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago this Tuesday. Uh, an attempt to do, not to do something new. This wasn't a movement to try to do something new in the church, but was an attempt to bring the church back to the purity of the gospel and the scriptures and the teaching of, of the apostles. And so starting today in four or five weeks, we'll be reflecting on several core beliefs uh, that, on which the Christian faith has been established and which was reaffirmed 500 years ago and continues to be reaffirmed as we go back to God's word and draw out what we believe and what we do and how we behave and the hope that we have that is derived from God's word. You know, recently, I've been so intrigued by these, uh, these tests that you can take uh, through the mail to get your DNA and to find out your heritage and your, your DNA, you know, Ancestry.com, and there's a, there's a few others where you can swab, you know, spit in a cup or something and swab your cheek and mail it off, uh, and then the government has your DNA forever. Uh, <laughs> I promise there's no conspiracy there. Uh, and you send off your spit, and, you can, and then you get this report back about your, your heritage, your ethnicity, even your geographical roots of, of where your family came from. They can go back thousands of years, and they trace like, where your family may have traveled and, and, and where you came from. And it's so amazing. Apparently, you can even see if you're you know, related to Genghis Khan or Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you can see if you're lactose intolerant and where that came from. Uh, just amazing stuff. And, and like our physical... Our physical heritage, if you're a Christian, you have a, have a faith heritage. And not learning about that faith heritage doesn't change your salvation. It doesn't change uh, maybe what you believe. Uh, but, but there's what great beauty and things that can come uh, from just learning about who we are and, and why we do believe what we believe and how it has come to this point. And so it's, it's, we, we go back 500 years. We learn about this, the historical roots of our faith and what we believe. Because it helps us to see and understand the story of God. It helps us understand what God has done in the world and, and in our lives and, and, and how we can inter, how we've learn how to interact with the church and with God's word in a, different, in a different way. And so now 500 years after the Reformation, it's important because it helps us go to deeper in and to see the beauty of all that God has done. And so we'll look at these five gospel truths uh, renewed during the Reformation period that are vitally important to us today. One of the questions that people were seeking to ask at the time, and, and really, frankly, they're seeking to ask it even today, is this question, how can we get God's approval? How do we get God's approval? Uh, how does a person get to a place with God, the creator of all things, where he accepts us and approves us? 
in order to be saved and forgiven. Martin Luther was a young German monk uh, teaching Old Testament outside of this sleepy town called Wittenberg, Germany. And Martin Luther came across this verse that we read in, in Romans chapter 1, and he spent a great deal of time on it. It really troubled him, and he wanted to know everything he could know about what this verse was saying. He was moved by it, and he says that it was after this time spending in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that he had a breakthrough in his belief. He said it was like being born again. He said it was like the gate that led to paradise, that he walked through this gate that led to paradise when learning what this was. And it was just this small phrase that said, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, Luther was appropriately troubled and terrified by the idea of God's justice, that God punishes sinners, that God is holy and that man is sinful and there is such a, a huge chasm between God and the sinful man that God had to punish sinners. Martin Luther was an Old Testament scholar. He taught the Old Testament. He knew that what does God do with sinful people? Well, he brings punishment to them. His wrath is being poured out on sin. And he was a good man. Martin Luther, by, by many respects, was a, a good man, but even he, a good man, knew that he wasn't entirely good, and when he matched his life up to the Ten Commandments, he knew that he failed daily, and he knew that he was deserving of God's justice and his wrath. And so he was concerned. He hated the idea of God's justice. He hated the idea that God would punish people. He hated the idea that God threatened sinners and that his wrath would be poured out on childcare workers and things like that, <laughs> you know. So he said, he said, isn't it enough? We do need extra volunteers in our kids' ministry if you're looking forward to that. He said, isn't it, an, isn't it enough that we, are, that we are born into sin? Isn't it enough that, we're, that we're, we're born with a sin nature, but then we have to go through this life burdened by sin and burdened, burdened by a heavy conscience and burdened by the ongoing effects of sin? See, we're, we're, we're just not just born with sin. Sin just follows with us every day of our life, and we feel the effects. Our body breaks down. We feel it in, 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 our, in our propensity to do wrong to disobey God. We, we feel it in our broken relationships. We feel it in our, the enmity between man and creation and bodies as they age and decay. Isn't it enough? And so it wasn't until he found out what Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 meant that his conscience was finally put at ease. And he went through that gate that led to paradise. He pondered in agony how a sinner could find mercy and approval from God. And then he read the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. And Martin Luther realized that it's possible for a sinner to find approval with a holy God. And this changed his life. It changed him, changed him so much. And so there are three crucial things that, and steps that Luther grasped that, about this passage that we need to grasp. Maybe you have never grasped it before. Maybe you, have, you are continuing to wrestle even today. How does a sinful person find their approval with God? How does a sinful person become forgiven? We stand as sinful people in front of a, a holy and righteous God. How do we bridge that, and how do we find relationship with him? How do we get his approval? Well, first crucial thing we need to know as we learn from this passage and from Luther's journey is this. Righteousness is a gift. Righteousness is a gift. Grace at the time of Luther, and, and, and now in many circles, was commonly understood to affect a person the same way that maybe water from a pitcher would affect an empty bowl. And so grace was poured into an empty bowl. And so this bowl, representing a man's soul, was empty and dead. 
And so grace was poured into it, and now that soul is good and full and not dead. And so our, our soul has been so affected by sin, but God's grace makes us good. And there's a problem with this, thinking about it in this way. The reformers searched scripture and they found a problem with how the grace of God actually affected a person and how we should actually understand the grace of God based on scripture. Grace does not make us good, but rather it declares us good. Grace does not take a sinful person and make that person good. It just takes a sinful person and, and changes us in such a way that in the eyes of God, we are good even still being a sinful person. So when a person trusts in Jesus, that very moment, he or she is clothed with the perfect righteousness and goodness of God, the holiness of God, so that even though that believer is still sinful, he or she is judged by God as not. Why does this matter? Well, it matters a great deal because if we think that the grace of God makes bad people good, then we'll spend our whole lives judging God's acceptance of us and forgiveness of us based on our ability to be good, based on our ability to maintain that goodness, to keep that goodness throughout our life. And when we sin, we will feel beat up and we will we'll beat ourselves up, we'll feel dejected. right? If, if God's grace is something that makes us good, then whenever we sin, we're going to say, God, I failed again. I'm a horrible person and I'm a loser. And when we succeed, we'll let the success go to our head. When we actually obey God, when we do something right and good and follow his commands, we'll say, I knew I was good. I knew I could do it. I knew I'm doing the right thing. And then we look at other people who are not doing the right thing. And we say, those people should be good. And what we're really saying is, those people should be more like me. When we'll fail, we'll always wonder if, if, if God's grace is going to run out, if God is eventually going to say, look at what I gave you, look at the grace that I gave you and how you've misused it. And we're waiting for that, that shoe to fall, so to speak. We're waiting for that last shoe just to fall, for God to be fed up with us. I spent much of my life viewing God and his grace in this way. God, I know you love me. I know that you're good and you have, you have gracious, you've given me your grace. You died on the cross for me, but come on, when is enough going to be enough? When are you going to finally look upon me and say, Pete, Look at all that I've done for you. My patience is running out. And I always lived in fear. God, when are you going to finally turn your back on me? Because I'm ready to turn my back on me. I wouldn't love me this much. God in his grace has declared a person righteous before that person actually begins to become righteous. But if the grace of God doesn't make a bad person good, but rather the grace of God declares an unrighteous person righteous, well, then something amazing has happened. If God doesn't just make us good, but he, rather he declares us good, something amazing has happened. It means that God has given us something, done something for us, based on nothing that we have done in return. That before we are able to even make a single righteous act, or do anything that would even merit our salvation, God declares us good and righteous in his eyes. Therefore, God's grace and acceptance is not based on any spiritual or moral good of the individual. Many think my, my sin has, has ruined my relationship with God. Many, many think this, and, and, if I, and if I simply stop sinning and obey God and get my life in order as I should, then I'll be able to fix that broken relationship. Right? That's rational. Sin broke this relationship with God. So lack of sin or being good will then restore my relationship to God. 
Romans and the rest of the Bible doesn't see sin as merely a problem or having a lack of good or just having a soul that is empty of good, but a relational problem. It's a problem of standing with God. It's a problem of relationship with God. Our standing with God is one of guilt. And so sin doesn't make the bowl empty like the previous analogy, but it shatters the bowl into a million pieces and then says, okay, now with this bowl shattered into a million pieces, hold the water that God needs to give you. And we say, there's no way. And so Luther reflected on this verse. Luther reflected on Romans 1. And this, this passage says, For in the righteousness of God is revealed faith from faith for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What's the it? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The it is the gospel. The gospel is the good news. How could God's righteousness, his, his justice, and punishment for sin be good news? Think about that. How is it good news that God punishes sin? That sounds like bad news, doesn't it? It's good news because not only is the righteousness of God a quality of God, it is a gift of God. It's something that he gives to us. His goodness, his righteousness, it's something that he, he gives to us. Luther said this verse for him was that gate that led to paradise. It was the light that opened up his eyes of his, art, his heart. When you think of God's righteousness, when you think of his rightness, his holiness, his perfection, his, his, his no blemish, no sin, no darkness at all, and, that, and, and if you think about it, it is not something that, that stands over creation as God is one of this uh, stands over creation and stands over the judgment as this, this very wicked and angry landlord standing over all of creation saying, I am good and you're bad and you guys better be good or help me, right? Or help me myself, right? <laughs> it's something that he gives to us so that we may be declared righteous before him. Not based on our record, but based on the perfect record of Jesus. If we say, God is, God is good, I've searched the scriptures, and I see how good God is, I see how good Jesus is, and then we say, then I need to be good too, so that I can be in good company with him. That's bad news. That's not good news, that's, that's bad news. It's bad news, like telling you that there's, there's living water in this well, but you don't have a bucket to get it. How devastating is that? If we say, look at the righteousness of God. It's so good, and you can have it. Just be good like him. We'll feel dejected. We will feel, one will say, we'll feel hopeless and say, well, I already know that I have failed. I already know I can't get it. Or we will actually say, I can do this, and every time we fail, we will feel like losers. You'll be discouraged your whole life trying to live up to this, searching everywhere for this new bucket that you can't find to draw out that water or you'll reject God as an unkind God. You say, you tell me where this well is, and then you don't give me a bucket? Forget you. I'll live my own life. I'll get my own water. But there's a problem. That's the only water. That's the only water that gives life. What's been your story? I mean, maybe it's been one of rebellion. Maybe you've said, God, if you're like this, that you have promised this life, but you say I can't earn it, how cruel can you be? Maybe you're in that place, or you've been in that place. Maybe you're angry with God. Or maybe you're feeling really good about yourself because you live a pretty good life. You obey God as much as you can. You try, you read your Bible, you try to obey His commands, and you feel pretty good. Sure, you make your mistakes, but your good is better than your bad. You haven't killed anybody. We always do that, right? Well, I haven't killed anybody. 
Or maybe you just feel just kind of, you just feel dejected, depressed. You feel like an outcast. You feel just like you're not doing a good job and you know it. And you just hope that God will, I don't know, somehow just not run out of his grace for you. Well, it's God's goodness. God's go- in God's goodness is the act of his grace that gives his goodness to sinners so that they would be regarded as good before God, even though we're not at all that very good. And so this righteousness that God gives to us, it's a gift that he gives to us. Where does this gift come from? Well, the second crucial thing we need to know about being approved by God is this, that righteousness is external. Righteousness is outside of us. And I'm going to describe this second point uh, just with a simple analogy. And I want to talk about the Bergen. The Bergen, of course, are the, uh, the antagonists in the animated film Trolls, right? I'm going to expose the movie, and hopefully you'll never enjoy it again. Uh, the Bergen were these monsters, and as it goes, they didn't know how to dance or sing or hug. They were the most miserable creatures alive. And the only way that the Bergen can be happy is how? You don't want to say it, but you know. They, they have to eat a troll. Now, this is a problem because the only way that the Bergen could be happy is by eating a troll, but the trolls didn't want to be eaten, right? They wanted to live their lives, and they were, they were fun, and they were happy, and they danced or sung and hugged each other. One of the trolls, voiced by Justin Timberlake, says, <laughs> in despair, he says in despair, he says, you have to eat a troll to be happy. Everyone knows that, don't they? See, he's a troll. He doesn't want to be eaten, but he just said, this is just the way it is. He, you, Everyone has to eat a troll. You have to eat a troll to be happy. Everyone knows that. To which Princess Poppy replies, and this is what I want you to hear. She says this, happiness is not something that you put inside. It's already there. You just need someone to help you find it. I want to puke. (laughs) And somewhere a youth leader is saying the same analogy but meaning something totally different. Um, That was a knock towards youth pastor theology. (laughs) Stop telling your children that happiness is deep inside of them, that they just need to find it. The only thing that comes from inside your children is more sin and more disobedience. We We need an animated film reformation. We need to nail the 95 theses on the Hollywood sign. <laughs> no, I, love, I actually love all these movies. Uh, sin comes from within, but the grace of God comes from without. Sin comes from within, but the grace of God is external. It's not something inside of us. It's not something that we can just dig deep and find this ability to, to find God's approval, to love Him, to be loved by Him. Sin comes from within, but grace comes from the outside. Our behaviors might change for a while. I mean, you can muster up the courage and energy to do good. You can follow commands. You can change your life and turn over a new leaf and change the chapter. You can avoid certain sins. You can actually look good for a while on the outside, but nothing has changed. Your heart has not changed. Our righteousness, our right standing with God is an alien righteousness, meaning it's it's foreign, it's outside of us, it's external. The Bergen were right. You have to eat it. You want to be happy, you have to eat it. For Jesus said, I am the bread that has come from heaven. If anyone eats my bread, they will live forever. The Bergen were right. 
It comes from outside, and Jesus is saying, I have come from the outside. I have come down from heaven. Receive me. It's the only way you'll have my righteousness. The only way that you will approve by God is if something outside of you comes inside of you and changes your standing with God. Here's a test to see if you believe that your acceptance before God is external or if it's something that comes from within you. When you think of uh, when you think about God and his opinion of you, is it mainly because of what you have done or is it mainly because of what God has done for you? If you think about why does God love you? Why are you going to heaven? Why has he forgiven your sins? And you start thinking about the life choices that you have made, the family you have come from, the schools you have attended, the, the homework you've done, the Bible studies that you've completed, the, the, the good things that you have changed. If you start thinking about all that you have done, what you're saying is that, that righteousness comes from inside. That righteousness comes from within me and I just needed to tap into it or I just needed someone to help me find it. Or when you think about what, what makes you approved by God is you think about everything that's come outside of you. You think about the work of God that he has done for you on your behalf. You think about Jesus living the perfect life that you should have lived and yet failed to live. You think about the death that he died in your place. You think about the punishment that he took for your sins. And the way you, you think about, well, the grace of God I have, that has come to me, not because I dug deep or I changed my life, it has come to me from the outside. It is an alien righteousness. And I've taken hold of it. And I've found it. It has found me. It has captivated me. And it has changed me. It is nothing in myself. In myself. The Bible says the heart is deceitful. The heart is, is deceitful beyond our own understanding. Who can understand it? Who can understand how, how wicked and prone we are? Sure, we haven't, we haven't done all the bad things we could do, but sin has affected us completely, relationally, emotionally, intellectually, and, and, and spiritually. It's affected us in every way. Being made right with God is about status before God. Not about something within us that is activated or, or strengthened or pulled out. Salvation is not an act of our will, but a gift of God. So the grace of God is not something that makes us good so that we can become righteous. Righteousness is not inherent within us. Yet God is pleased to accept the perfect righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. He is pleased to look upon the righteousness of Jesus, all the good that Jesus did, perfect, perfectly obeying God actively, passively, by, by submitting to God's will for him and obeying God's law perfectly and, to, and going to die on the cross for us. God looked at Jesus and said, well done, well done. He is pleased to look on Christ on our behalf. And so when he accepts us and approves of us, it's not because we are good. It's because we are in Christ. He approves of us even though we didn't earn it. What an amazing thing. We're declared righteous even though we're not. We're declared innocent even though we're very guilty. We're declared sons and daughters even though we are orphans. The gospel is not a hospital that makes us healthier, but the gospel is a courtroom that makes us innocent. The good news is not that Jesus died on the cross for you so you can actually be better and God will look upon you then with favor and he's given you this option. 
That's just like a hospital where God just mends our wounds and gets us strong enough. But the gospel is like a courtroom where we stand before God as guilty and the judge acquits us based on the righteousness of another. But not everyone's received this gift, have they? Not everyone has received the gift and finds the approval of God. Not all are saved and in a right standing with God. So how do we make sure that we have entered into this relationship with God where we have received this alien righteousness? Well, this is the third and final thing that our passage and, and Luther's uh, study has taught us and reminded us of, is that righteousness is by faith alone in Jesus. We enter into this relationship by faith alone in Jesus. We're passive in our salvation. So what we mean is we're passive. It's something that is not active. We receive it. It's something received, not earned. 500 years ago, there was an important uh, turning point in the Western church on how we talked about this question, how do we come to a place where we find approval with God? And 500 years ago, there was this turning point for how we answered this question. Let me give you some, some history I think is helpful. There was one church, the Catholic church, and they taught that we were saved by our baptism, but there was a problem. Because after we were baptized as, as, as newborns, we, we kept sinning. You didn't need any, there was no secret, right? The kids, they grew up and they, uh, they were sinful. And so we kept sinning and certain sins would, would ruin our baptism. And so we needed something called penance. Penance was a way of a person demonstrating their true, their true sorrow for sin. And there was a three-step process where they would, they would enter into this penance, right? They would, they would express sorrow, godly sorrow and regret and confess of their sins. They would confess to a priest and then the priest would absolve them of their sin or declare that their sins have been forgiven. And so going through this process was a way for, for the follower of Jesus to, to build on their baptism, to, to where their baptism was ruined because of their sin, was a way for their uh, sins to continue to be forgiven. But there was an even bigger problem. See, the, the penance covered their guilt. They could go away not feeling guilty of their sin and had been forgiven, but it didn't take away the punishment for sin. So at the time, the church required a, a satisfaction of works like prayer and, and fasting. And without these works, which satisfies God's punishment for sin, they had a really hard time in a place called purgatory. You guys are familiar with that word, probably. This concept of purgatory, you've probably heard of it. It wasn't hell, and it was a very uncomfortable and unpleasant place. There were still flames, there was still discomfort, but it was a way that the, the, that the Christian, after they died, would go to a place to purge of the sins and purge of their sins so that the punishment of God wouldn't be on them. It was a place where they continued to work out their salvation, a place where they went after they died, and they could purge the lingering effects of a life of sin. And this is where something called indulgences came out. And you'll see why they were so popular in just a moment. Indulgence was a piece of paper that you could get by fighting in the Crusades or paying for, and this piece of paper with the seal of the Pope would be on it and said, because you have this, you would be released from purgatory. Your sins would be, the punishment of sin would be removed. And by the authority of the Pope, you could purchase not only an indulgence for yourself, but here's the, here's the kicker. You could purchase an, indul you can, an indulgence for your dead family member who was in purgatory already. You can see why they were so popular. If you want to see how popular they were, just visit St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the biggest church in the world. It was built with the revenue that came from indulgences. It's beautiful. It costs a lot of money. A lot of people bought these. 
So traveling salesmen would come through the town in like Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther lived and where he was from, where he taught, and they would shout in the streets. This phrase said, listen to the sound of your parents screaming in purgatory. And one traveling salesman, uh, Friar Johann Tetzel, would travel to a town, and he said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. It was, it was like the first jingle. It was like the first advertising jingle, and it was widely effective. It was worked so well. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. They were so powerful. They would even forgive the worst of sins. And Martin Luther was uh, furious at this practice. He was furious not because he was a Lutheran. He wasn't a Lutheran yet. Or maybe he was always a Lutheran. Uh, Martin Luther, was, he was furious on Catholic grounds. He was a, he was a Catholic monk, and, and he loved being a monk. He didn't want to not be a monk. He loved what he was doing, but he was furious by this practice. He was a monk who greatly des- desired to please God and to live a holy life. And at the time, being a nun, uh, a nun or a monk was among the best things you could do to please God and to live a life of righteousness. And he felt like these indulgences, these beliefs, these practices were out of step. They were a cheap get-out-of-jail-free card. It struck, a, it struck his conscience. It felt, made him feel very uneasy. And he would say, Luther would say, if, if, the, if the Pope had this power to release anyone from purgatory just by a statement, then in the name of love, why doesn't he let everyone out? He never got an answer. And so on October 31st, 1517, Luther, 500 years ago this Tuesday, Martin Luther walked up from his monastery to the castle church and nailed upon the door of the church a poster with 95 short statements that have come to be known as the 95 Theses. You could read them all, just Google it. It's not that long. And this wasn't a major act of rebellion or protest. It was like a Facebook post or like a Twitter rant. It was like a blog entry. You know, this is where the place where you would just put on something and said, hey, can we talk about this? So it was just the modern day like Twitter. And so he's putting this on the wall among probably many other posts and advertisements and questions for the church. And he said, can we, start a talk, can we talk about this? Can we start a conversation, a debate about this? And so he posted his 95 theses. And here's thesis number, thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The basic idea in his of all these 95 statements is this, you cannot buy grace with money. Works are something we do to obey God and his commandments, not something we do to earn his acceptance and favor. And so the life of a believer is marked not by continually earning God's love, but turning from sin and to life in Christ. From turning from our sin, which causes spiritual death, and turning to faith in Jesus who died for us and his righteousness alone for spiritual life. And let me tell you, this was a very big deal. A very big deal for him to say this. It would undermine the authority of the Pope. Luther would ask, if you can show me somewhere in Scripture where I am wrong on this, then I promise I'll take everything back. I will tell you and tell everyone I know that has read this that I was wrong and that it was not the right thing to do. If you can tell me from Scripture that I'm wrong. And his accusers replied with, that's not the point. The church has settled the matter. You have to take it back. To which Luther replied, Unless I am convicted by error of, of error by the scriptures and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, 
I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us or open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And there's another thing that happened at the, around the same time, and that was the invention of the printing press. And so, so Luther's Twitter rant went viral. Because of like the, the, the printing press was just invented, and he put this out, and so it spread all across Europe. And it got people longing for reform. It got people longing to be renewed in their spiritual life by what the Bible actually says about our relationship with God and how we find approval to God. Not the authority of the Pope. It would bring about the reform in the church according to the Bible rather than by by counsels or opinions of men. It would, lead, it would lead to the spirit or to the split of the Roman Catholic Church. It would unveil one of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit of God upon the church since the time of Jesus. And this spark that led to a forest fire of renewal in the church was this simple nailing of Luther's 95 theses on the doors of the church. And so what is faith? What does it mean then to actually have faith in Jesus? For many Christians, when we say to live a life of faith, and when you think about this, it it might mean for you, it might just mean, you might think about it in this way, to live a life by faith is to live a life faithfully, which means I'm living by faith when I'm living faithfully or obediently to God. That's not what it means to live by faith. To live by faith is this, to live by faith is to live each and every moment, not, on a, not by the virtue of our character, but each and every moment taking hold of Christ, receiving Him, resting in Him, believing that we're held secure in the love of God solely on the merits of Jesus, not ours. That we're counted innocent before God on the merits of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and triumphant resurrection. That's what it means to live by faith, to take hold of God's promise that he has made, that if anyone receives Jesus and believes in him, that we would have his righteousness. So to live a life of faith doesn't mean to just be faithful and to be obedient. It means to trust in what Jesus has done. Salvation is a gift and is of sheer mercy. Our justification, meaning being right with God, is not a gradual process, but it's a once and for all change of status from orphan to child, from guilty to innocent, from dead to alive in Christ. Our ability to grasp anything of eternal value in Jesus is never based on impeccable character or ability to reason your thought through it or a heartfelt seeking after it or even your niceness. None of it made a difference. It always is on the kindness of God. It's always on His mercy and His grace. It's always external. It's always alien. It's always given. And in Luther's time, you see, it's easy as we look at this history to be thinking about maybe the Catholic Church or other churches or things like that, but this is not meant for that. You know what this is meant for? This is meant for us to critique our heart, meant for us to critique our beliefs and our practices and to be reformed according to God's Word and what He says. Not by the church we grew up in, or even what the culture says is good. Is we saying, God, would you, would you inform how I, I am to believe and how I am to function and, and how I am to hope by what you have said in your word? 
easy to notice and criticize the discrepancies of others with Scripture's view of justification. But to handle Scripture well and to handle this verse well, we need to learn from history and we need to criticize our own tendencies to not believe it, to rebel against the biblical answer that righteousness, that the righteous will live by faith that is not earned or deserved. What, is, what does the Reformation mean for us today? It means a great deal. It means that our salvation is an act of God. Because it's an act of God based on Jesus' completed work, you can have assurance. You don't have to live in doubt that if you put your faith in Christ, you've received this alien righteousness, that you trust in His work alone for you, that you don't have to be afraid about the future. That we live, the Reformation teaches us that we can rest assured in His promise. The Reformation teaches us that much of life is forward thinking. It's, it's, it's eternal thinking. It's living with, a, with, with a, an eye on, on forever with God, not just living in the present. It means that we follow Jesus with a future orientation, not paralyzed by daily sin, but rejoicing in our future verdict that God has promised to be in our favor and taking hold of that by faith and being certain of it that our future verdict is innocent innocent that when Jesus returns to judge that we will be called innocent not because we are but because Jesus is and we have trusted in him do you constantly worry about your sins you see Luther even believed that um, you're only forgiven of the sins that you that you confess of and so if you confess of your sin went to confession uh, on your way out from confession Thought a, thought, had a thought in your head or a voice that came out of your mouth that was sinful and then got hit by a truck and died, that sin wasn't forgiven. And so Martin Luther would spend hours in confession with his superior. He would go in and spend hours a day in confession. He would leave confession, and before he even left the building, he would run back and say, oh, I forgot a new one. I forgot another one. I need to be absolved of this. And his superior would say this, look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father. This priest says this, commit adultery, stop coming here with such fake sins. I love, this is pretty good. They're not good advice, but it's good, to, it's good to know, like, if you live paralyzed by your sin, thinking that I'm only forgiven of the sins I confess of, then you're forgiven based on your ability to first understand, to internalize, and to, and to have the opportunity to confess of those. But if Jesus' sacrifice, once and for all sacrifice, forgives your past and, and present and future sins, then we live with a new kind of hope, a new kind of peace. To be in a continual state of reformation is to remember that in all things we are continually reforming our lives according to God's word. Not reforming according to changes in culture. It's going to change. Not reforming to... Uh, emotions, those are going to change. You ever felt an emotion and then realized it wasn't probably the right thing? Always changing so that we are living out the glorious good story of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The good news is that the power is of God and not of ourselves. It is a blessing. The, the gospel uh, is, is, it is the blessing of God with all of its benefits. It is the gift of God that comes with batteries included. Right? You ever get that? You ever get that gift? You're so excited. You open it up. You see it's what you've always wanted. It's really great. And then you, you see it says batteries not included. 
You ever see that look on your child's face or yourself? You remember getting something like this and you're like, what am I going to do with this? It's like getting a great gift that is useless if you don't have the power. Well, when, 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 when Paul says here, the Apostle Paul in Romans, when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he's saying that this righteousness comes not just halfway and then you need to get the will to read the instructions, to put it together, to go out and buy batteries and then you can enjoy it. He says it is, it's all the way. It is a gift of God that is all the way. It's really great. It's really great because Jesus takes our sin and you take his righteousness. End of story. He takes your sin, you take his righteousness. End of story. The main problem today is we haven't thought deeply about this good news and how it affects our daily lives. We think about it as it relates to our relationship with God, but not a relationship with, with others, our work relationships, our families. We trust in the gospel for salvation, but then we use a different framework with work and marriage and, and bringing up children and, 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 and befriending uh, those who are lost or the least or the, the last. We never get beyond our need for the gospel, and it's so counterintuitive. The gospel is absolutely unique. It contradicts everything that we have ever heard. It says that, that God's work on the cross is, is good enough. That, he, that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he means it is finished. That the, that the punishment for sin has been atoned for. That the work for our acceptance and favor has been completed. We take hold of him. The only thing we need for salvation is, is need, is this crying out for mercy and acknowledging that we are dependent on God, that it is an external righteousness. Have you ever walked through the gate that leads to paradise? Like Martin Luther acknowledged, this gate is a person. It's not a, it's not a list of things to accomplish. The gate is a person. Enter through Christ to receive the righteousness in place of your guilt, and then you will find true paradise. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a gift. We thank you. We thank you for this good news that we have heard today. We thank you for history and the way that you have worked through the ages uh, to, to bring about your good plans. Let us not take for granted that the, the people that have fought uh, for truth that have gone before us. We thank you for uh, men and women who have fought for the faith, uh, bringing us back to what the Bible says, that have given their life for it. But we thank you most of all for the one who has given his life for ours. We thank you for Jesus. Apart from his work, we would be completely unable to please you. We would be completely unable to know you. We would be completely hopeless in our sin. We thank you, Jesus, for your perfect righteousness in our place. And as we take this meal together, we take your supper, Lord. Let us be fed. For you are the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And as we feast on you in faith, we receive your power to be made more and more into your likeness from one degree to the next. We thank you for not giving up on us. We thank you for the promise of the gospel that by trusting in Jesus that we are sons and daughters of God, no longer orphans, no longer dead in our sin, but alive in Christ. So we pray for this meal together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.